I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Good to see you folks. Um, welcome to Advent. All right, grab, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. I'm looking at my note here, and it looks like my, uh, my iPad has autocorrected Philippians to the Philippines. <laughs> Good thing I didn't look down and read that as I was telling you to turn in the Bible. That would have been embarrassing. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then down the center aisle of seats, there is a, a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other. Grab that, use it as we're working through the Scriptures today, and you're welcome to take that with you if you don't have a Bible. Philippians chapter 4, looking at five verses, verses 4 through 9. Our tradition is we read these out loud together, and so if you would uh, oblige me by doing that, uh, we're going to read verses 4 through verse 9 together. Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are glad to be here. Uh, there's no other place that I'd rather be. And uh, Lord, I, I pray the words of the psalmist that in your presence that there would be fullness of joy this morning. God, that it, uh, we've already sung about the words, but God, would you make the words come alive in our hearts uh, today, but during this season, it's Christmas time, and uh, there was even a, a, a joy uh, in our setup crew as we're getting ready and pulling out portable Christmas trees and putting out a few decorations here. And so this season lends to us having joy. It's an external joy, but God, would you uh, do what only you can do? Would you give us a joy that springs from the inside because of not the circumstances of our life that they're pleasant um, or because just everything's going right in our life, but because we, we know you, we're in you, um, and we're growing in you. And that was, that's our prayer today. Help us as we go through this passage uh, 
Help us to see you, your gospel, and, and change us. Make us more like you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to have a Philippians Christmas. Uh, sort of explain that to you all, all before. Um, we are nearing the end of this great book. And we are going to slow down a little bit. Uh, because Philippians, uniquely, the themes that Paul presents to the church at Philippi, um, kind of does double duty for us in terms of our focus for Advent. And so you'll see the text today talks about joy, and that's really our theme for today as we celebrate the first uh, week of Advent, joy. And, and Paul says it right up front in verse 4. He says rejoice. In fact, he says it twice to get our attention. He says rejoice in the Lord, important word, always. And then he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. So Paul wants us to rejoice. And I got to be a little honest with you. This is a, is a public confession from your pastor. Um, this is not, I love this text. Some of the I mean, verses are the very first verses that I memorized as a, as a young cadet at West Point. But this is not the easiest thing for me to live out. This is not actually the easiest text for me to preach because I'm not the most joyous person all the time. That was probably me. I'm sorry. Um, that's what I ate. Um, but that's really is what happens when you preach um, passages of the Bible, when you pe- preach books of the Bible. Sometimes a, a pastor like me will happen upon a text that it's not your favorite text. In this case, it is. But it's a text that you actually need to grow in as well. And that really is what the, the, really the whole book of Philippians has done for me. I cannot, I, I sometimes, a lot of times, the last couple years, I have not been the most joyous person in the world. And uh, I don't need to, to, to confess to you all the reasons why that's so. You know, I'm a little older. I ain't telling you how old I am. Um, we've been planting this church for four and a half, five, actually more than that for my family as we started in North Carolina, sort of like geared up. And, uh, you know, so this has been going for a while. And just the, the anxiety, I confess a little, little bit of worry and stress as to, are we going to make it? And then when it seemed like we're going to make it, and then people started coming, and it's, you know, leaders, and we're in a military community, so like it's transient. So y'all come for a while, and then the military just, just sucks you out. It's like, what happened? All the people just left, and we're starting all over. So this feels like my, gosh, it feels like I'm on my third church plant. It's been four and a half years. So that's part of it. And just the, the hustle and, and the bustle of life. And then there's all these unknown things going on in me uh, that I don't even know what it is that kind of sucks uh, the joy out of you sometimes. But this really became a revelation to me, this, this you know, this teeter-totter with joy. My wife and I had the opportunity to go to the great city of Charleston about two years ago. I'm two years ago. Um, two months ago. We were there with a cohort that I've been a part of. So I've been a part of a small cohort, uh, six, six pastors and I, sort of sharing life, growing together, meeting once a quarter in different parts of the country, mentors coming in, talking to us about being healthy. Uh, and we're at the end of this cohort. We're all sitting in a room around a table, pastors and wives, having fun. It was really a joyous time. And then one of the group, guys in the group sort of looks at me, Jeff, says, hey, Jeff, so what, I mean, What's going on in your life that you, that you have joy about? And I looked at him dumbfounded, and I had nothing. Like my, my thought, I'm like going through the Rolodex of my mind. My family loves me. I got a church that's, you know, grow, growing and going, you know, it's going. God has blessed us. Financially, we can provide for our needs. I got a kid in college, and he's doing well. I mean, all these external things that I'm thinking about, and I, could not, I couldn't conjure up anything to say I was joyous about it. 
And that let me know, all right, something's wrong with you, dude. Yeah, and fortunately, it was a safe environment. I didn't have to make it up. I could just be very honest with those, those men and women in that place. And I'm doing the same thing with you um, here today. I couldn't answer him. Um, and that just gave me the, the revelation, all right, I need to do something. Here's the Lord's providence for Jeff uh, and pretty much for you too. Uh, we had decided long ago to start the book of Philippians. And what's this book about? Joy, right? And so it, how does a pastor get fed? The things that Nick and I and Saju stand up here and sermonize about, I mean, it, we're, we're preaching to ourselves first. In fact, you're being a hypocrite if you aren't preaching to yourself first as a pastor. And so the words that Paul has used to uh, exhort, challenge um, this, this, this church at Philippi have been balm for my soul. I'm going to give you uh, a specific way the Lord has grown me, uh, challenged me. Uh, to grow in this area of joy at the end of my sermon. But, but here's the thing about joy. I'm transitioning here. It's, it's a word that we don't actually use a lot. I mean, when's the last time that you woke up in the morning, got your coffee, got dressed, walked out the door, got to work and said, hey, yes, I'm going to rejoice today. I'm going to have some good old fashioned J-O-Y joy. I mean, Anybody, like, right, right. There's a couple of y'all. There's a couple of y'all I know. Amy Ruiz would definitely do this. She, but she's the only one in the whole congregation that would do that. Um, nobody really does that. Uh, for many of us, joy is not in our vocabulary, but it, it really is in the Bible all over the place. We've talked several times in this series. Paul says joy, rejoice, some version of that, 16 times. He's trying to get a point over to this church. Uh, that we are supposed to be people of joy, not circumstantial joy, joy from the inside, like Jesus loving joy. But it's also in the Bible. Here's a few of my favorite verses. First Chronicles 16, 10. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 28, 7. This is in the NIV. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. Psalm 30, 11, also in the NIV. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter, in chapter 49, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Jesus in the Beatitudes is given all those passages about blessed are you if you do this, blessed if you do that. And he comes upon the, the end of that. And he says, these are the blessings that come on those who are persecuted. And he says, rejoice, um, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's just a different take on joy, isn't it? The gospel writer Luke is writing about this season that we're celebrating here, talking about the prophecy of Jesus coming. And he says in Luke chapter one, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his at Jesus birth. Um, James, the Jesus half brother, tells us that our joy needs to be beyond our circumstance. In chapter one, verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
and nothing. And finally, 1 Peter 4, 13. Peter's writing to a dispersed group of, uh, of Jews that are there. Why they're dispersed? Because they're being persecuted. And here's what he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, I mean, what's the commonality of all those verses that I could have read hundreds more? It's like joy, joy, rejoice, joy, joy everywhere. It's, it really is, you know, a, a theme throughout the scriptures. And here's what's unique contextually, not just the verses that I've read, but how the Bible presents the idea of joy. And it's this. It's not that all these Bible people had the, bir- had the best things going on in their lives. I mean, it, it, life was not necessarily hunky and dory. Hunky Dory, is that right? Hunky Dory, as is, is there a person named Dory? Like, yeah. I mean, life was like hectic for many of these Bible Christians, and uh, and yet they're talking about joy. And the Lord obviously is trying to get us to know something. And so, here's the question for us today: What does it mean to experience joy? What does it mean for us to rejoice? Here's a definition for you: to literally delight in. We sang about that a little bit today. We talked about it in our Advent liturgy as we looked at Psalm 37, 4. It means to hope and to be glad in. The things that you rejoice in are those things that bring you satisfaction in life. You rejoice in those things that you rely on. Here, contextually, Paul is saying that to rejoice is actually to feel happiness, is to be content regardless of what life's lot might lead you in that particular situation. And of course, Paul has talked about joy some 14 times already in this text. He's got a few more to go in throughout the, the chapter before he concludes and says his last words. But what Paul has done throughout Philippians is he's also given us a picture of what counterfeit joy looks like. And counterfeit joy is really those things that, that get us off track. They derail us in our worship and, and service of God. And so counterfeits to rejoicing. Here's the first one. We rejoice in our commitment to God rather than in God himself. And really, that means you're relying on what you're doing for God and instead of what God is doing for you in Jesus. You focus on your spiritual performance than on Jesus' spiritual performance on your behalf, your work. My goodness, my kindness, all those things that I do instead of Jesus person and his work. And, you know, you're rejoicing in your own commitment uh, when you have a bunch of eyes in your spirituality. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm going to church. I'm doing good. I'm serving. What else would you say? Don't say it. To rejoice in your own commitment is to take more joy and and more of what you're doing for God than what he's doing for you. And a lot of I mean, we do that all the time. Pastors like me stand up and we preach and we give an example from our life. And they're always good examples like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were doing devotions and I was stopping and I helped a homeless person out. And I went and witnessed on the metro. All this stuff. I did it. I did it. I did it. We sing worship songs. We don't sing worship songs, but that's that's a taboo in our church. But I mean, some of the worship songs that we sing that are popular are all about what I'm going to do for God when I get up. I'm going to love you forever. What about tomorrow? When when you don't feel like loving God, can you sing that same song? And so counterfeit to, to rejoicing, we rejoice in our own commitment to God rather than his 
than, than God, than in God. Secondly, we rejoice in our own circumstances. And to rejoice in your own circumstances is to have joy when life is easy. Like an easy bake oven. You just like push it together, put that stuff in. Voila, five minutes, it's all out. You got a little cookie. Your kid made. And we do this a lot as, as Americans. It's, it's part of our culture. This, this life is easy. Give it to me now. Kind of, a, kind of a culture. We live in this futuristic ideal of when I get this kind of life, when I get that job, when this spouse happens upon me, when I have this child, when I find the right church, then and only then will my life have meaning and purpose. When I get what I want, then I'm going to be happy. I'll have joy. I ain't going to have no joy until I get what I want. And sometimes we don't say that, but that's really the disposition of our souls. And we're living that out. And so when you rejoice in your own circumstances, here's what you're saying. You're saying, I can only experience happiness, satisfaction. I'm only going to rejoice when things are going well in my life, when things are great. I'll focus on God. I'll praise God when things are good. But of course, this is what Paul's getting at. The Bible doesn't say rejoice when things are going well. What was what the Bible say? It says, rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. This is not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on your commitment. Paul is commanding us, exhorting us, regardless. Always is an important word in this text. I'll come back to it in a couple of minutes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And so rejoicing in the Bible has to be more than just my religious commitment to God. It has to be more than just favorable circumstances. And we know that because Paul is writing from jail. He's been in jail for a little bit. We don't know how long, perhaps two years. And Paul's disposition is probably at best he's lying on a rat infested floor in his own feces and urine. Uh, at best case scenario, they got him a little stool. But even in that, he's, he's chained to a Praetorian guard, a guardsman that he can't get away from. Paul has no way of getting himself out of the circumstance that he is in. And here's the unique thing about Paul. God put him there. Make no doubt about it. Paul says it to us. God put me here. Yeah, here's what Paul says to us. He says to you and me, rejoice in the Lord. So again, I ask, I mean, what does it mean for us to rejoice? Tim Keller helps us here. Here's what Tim Keller says. What we rejoice in is whatever is our central sweetness and comfort in life. Those are elaborate words from Dr. Keller. But I think he goes on to explain himself in these, this next series of sentences. To rejoice in something is to treasure it, to access, uh, assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and taste the sweetness of it. This is from his book, Counterfeit Gods. I'm going to come back to this definition and hopefully give it a little bit more transparency uh, in a couple seconds. But here's what I think uh, Dr. Keller is getting at. He's getting at why should we do this rejoicing thing? Why, why should we do what Paul is telling us to do? Uh, and, and really, verse four points it out. We rejoice in the Lord, firstly, because he's the Lord. You see that? Capital L-O-R-D. That's the Greek word, curios. Uh, it's, it's more than just uh, a, a pretty four little word in the text. It's capitalized because it's talking about God. It's a title for God and 
for Jesus. Greek word kurios. And, and here, Paul is saying, we rejoice because the Lord is the owner. He's the master. He's the ruler of everything to include you and all those parts of you that you don't want him to rule over. And so here's Paul's reasoning in verse four. If I would use some of Dr. Keller's um, language to explain it, he's saying you might as well find your central sweetness and consolation in the one capital one O.N.E. who controls everything because you get a better return if you're rejoicing in the Lord because of all those other things that you try to satisfy yourself and find your happiness in. It's not if it's, it's a when. It's one day going to let you down. It's going to disappoint you. There's only one source of joy, and that joy comes from Jesus. In verse 5, he says, we rejoice in the Lord because the Lord is at hand. Those are the words at the end of that text. Scholars tell us this, this idea of uh, the Lord is at hand means one of two things. Firstly, it perhaps means that Jesus is coming. Think of what Paul has said in the end, at the end of chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body by the power that, that, that only he has. So Paul is saying, the, Jesus is, is coming, and this, is, this should bring you joy. Because the, the, the world that you're living won't always be the world that you exist in. But then there's another set of scholars who say, ah, that ain't it. It's, it's not that Jesus is coming. It's that he's already here. The Lord is at hand means he's present. He, he is near to me. And that really describes the that that's a suggestion of the two ways that we can describe God. One way that we can describe God is he's transcendent. He's otherworldly. He's outside of us totally um, non-dependent on us nor the world that he has made that he that we live in. That's that's God, the transcendent God. And we can't touch this God. We don't completely understand that God. But he all, he's also imminent, which means he's near. And this is the God that we talk about during Christmas time. It's it's the, the baby in swaddling clothes. It's the God who is eternal, that condescended into our life, was born as a baby and he comes near to us to rescue us, to save us. That's the baby we talk about at, at, at Christmas. That's the Jesus we talk about at Jesus. And so um, God is imminent. God is transcendent. Here's what I think. I think both of these are true. But either way you see it, here's what's going on. Our response should be the same. We should acknowledge and submit to this God because what? He's the Lord of everything, including those parts of you that you don't want him to be the Lord of. And so here's what's going on in the rest of this text. There's, there's, there are some that would say, this is Paul at the end of a letter, just like you would be at the end of a letter, and you're just adding in all those things that you want to say, feel good things, challenging things, exhortation kind of things, and he's listing them one after another. But I think one way to... Um, to observe what's going on in this text is to see that Paul is connecting all these other thoughts that he says, at least the verses that we're looking at today, in the, con in the context of what does it mean to rejoice? And so I think he says four things. Firstly, he says, uh, you are rejoicing when you are reasonable with people. Verse five, 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so the word reasonable comes from a word that means gentle patience. And the idea that Paul is conveying to us is that being reasonable um, for us is important because we have harsh people that we sometimes interact with. Paul in this text um, has talked um, quite fluently about people who are opponents of the gospel and people who are enemies of the cross. And I think that, I mean, we don't talk about that a lot, but we all as Christians have both of those. You have people who are in your life or at least surrounding you that are opponents of the good news of Jesus. They don't like your Bible. They don't like your God. And because they don't like your Bible and your God or your faith, they don't like you. And then you have those who are like straight up, like in your face, enemies of the cross. And we have both those those types of people around us all the time. Here's another thing that Paul's brought out in our text. He's exhorted uh, just a few verses before this, uh, Yodia and, and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. And I think this reminds us that Paul has had this emphasis throughout this whole text about unity. Unity amongst Christians, unity amongst people in the church, and he's emphasizing this throughout the letter. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying when you're dealing with people, especially in difficult circumstances, be reasonable. And, and why is this important? Because people are watching. Paul has talked about the let the witness of your faith correspond to the gospel you profess. That's been, I think, the, one of the, the, the trains of thought that's flowed throughout our text. And Paul says, come on, the Lord is at hand. He, the, the Lord is, you're going to go to heaven one day and you got to be fit for heaven. You just can't waltz up in there and do what you want. God is changing you into his image, changing your heart as well. But also, God is not just far away. He's right here amongst you, in the spirit, living with you. And so he's saying, hey, put your emotions under, under control. Get them under control. Put them in check. Let the spirit lead you and don't freak out. All of this of course, is a consequence of rejoicing. When you rejoice, you're more apt to be reasonable with people. You're more apt to be reasonable with people who are, who are harsh, those who are your opponents and those who are enemies of the cross. We're rejoicing when we refuse to be uh, to worry by praying. This is like a refrigerator verse right here. Y'all memorize this one. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right. So, I mean, we suck this verse out of the text and we talk about it. We preach about it. We sing about it. Of course, we um, we memorize it. And I'm not going to do this justice, but public paid service announcement in January, we're going to start the year talking about prayer. Uh, we're going to actually be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And so perhaps we will revisit this idea of defeating worry by, by praying. Um, but, but of course, that's, that's, this is Paul's message to us. He's saying, don't, don't worry. Um, have you ever considered how silly worrying is? I know I'm probably being condescending to some of y'all because a few of y'all are worriers, right? Um, and so it's hard to tell ourselves not to, not to worry. But worry is, is actually a silly thing because when you worry, you give, a huge, you give a huge shadow to something that's likely a very tiny thing. 
You know how you, you shine a light on a small ant, rat, whatever, and it looks like this ferocious like animal uh, against the, the wall, the backdrop of a, of a shadow. And so that's what Paul's encouraging us to do. He's like, um, worry is theoretical. You don't know whether something is going to uh, come about or not, but you fret about it anyway, and so it's almost wasted time. The famed prime minister of, of England, Winston Churchill, who was who actually prime minister twice, um, he says this. He's reflecting back on the Allied victory in World War II. He says, when I look back on all these worries, the worries of the Allied armies as they were fighting against the enemy forces. I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. Ain't that the case sometimes? So worry for many of us, a lot of times, not all the time, it's, it's just wasted energy. You don't know if something is actually going to happen, and if, even if it does, you can't control it anyway. Any worries in the room? Would you confess? Are you a worrier? I got a couple. I think I'm too simple to worry. I stress a little bit, but I mean, it just like it goes out of me and something else comes up. I'm just like overwhelmed. Um, here's what we can't do when worry comes. We can't say to ourselves, we can't like slap our hand. It's like, stop it. You're just a bad Christian. Why don't you just stop worrying? Because when we do that, it really doesn't do anything but put a bruise on your hand. Right. And it makes you worry and fret even more because you just like spank yourself unwarranted. Um, you can't get a worry like you can't get rid of worry like that. And so how do you how do you get rid of worry? You got to replace it. And, and Paul here in our text says in verse six, we replace worry with prayer. Um, Mary Carter Crowley was a 1950s. She's like one of the famous, the, the, uh, a pioneer businesswoman, one of the first. She did a lot of the direct sales kinds of uh, Kinds of um, her fortune is, is in that, and I found this as I was researching our, our text today. And, and she says this: Every evening I turn my worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. I love her thinking here. It's kind of simplistic, but isn't that the truth? Like you got you got a couple choices. I can wring my hands. I can like pull my the little hair I have, or you can cause your hair to get, turn gray prematurely. Um, and then fret and worry all night about those things that you need to do, want to do, want to happen, but cannot control one iota. Or you can turn your worry over to God, put your head on the pillow, say, Lord, give me some sleep, please, and then go for it. Because God is going to be up all night. The psalmist says he never slumbers nor sleeps. And that is the case with our God. He doesn't need sleep. I think she gives us good advice. We rejoice when we obey the truth that you know. Skip down to verse 9. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. This is one of the most dangerous times to be a Christian. And it's dangerous for us, you living in the 21st century today, not because as Christians we're being persecuted, that you walk outside the gathering place of where Christians meet and there's people outside ready to slay you. That's not it. It's the most dangerous time for us as Christians because there's this plethora of information that you can grab and download and podcast and, and, and intercept at any time that you want. You all have access to almost every preacher in the world 
through a podcast or the internet. You can almost go to every major spiritual conference that exists on the planet on your smartphone. There's all kinds of information out there. There's an overload of information for all of us out there. And I would tell you as a pastor, that's dangerous. And it's not because I want you to podcast me. It's dangerous because of what Paul says. He says it's dangerous to accumulate knowledge, but not do anything with it. Actually, Paul didn't say this. James does. Jesus' little brother, James. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's so many of us that follow Jesus that know a lot and do little. I, I would consider myself one of those two. I know a whole lot, but I ain't doing enough with what I know. Paul's exhorting us that one of the consequences of rejoicing in the Lord is that you do, D-O, you do what you know. And we need to be challenged by this. Some of us need to quit. This is, this is controversial. All right, I'm making a controversial sentence. Some of us need to quit listening and just do what you know. Um, Peter and Brianna, Peter McCarthy, his new wife, Brianna, their little girl, Abriella, uh, were here last week. And I hope you got a chance to uh, see them, talk to them, hug their neck. It was just a joy to have them, just to see their face and see that they're doing well. Uh, my family took them out to lunch to Kumo. We got some good, good, good food, good fellowship. And uh, Peter made this. Uh, we're asking, you know, I'm plugging a little bit. It's like, what's going on? How's the job? How's marriage been? And they were very real and transparent with us. And uh, of course, Peter's going to their, their new church. He misses us. We miss him. And he said, you know what? It's, it's not the transit. And I miss theology. He's in a good church. They preach the Bible, but there's not an overemphasis on Jesus, God, the gospel, and the challenge that you get from, 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 being, from talking about theological topics all the time. So I miss theology, but then he says this. He said, you know what, but God is just, I, I, I know this. He's like, I just need to, do, I, got a, I got a lot of stuff in my head, theological stuff. I just need to do more with what I already got. And he's, I mean, that's, this is what he's talking about. Sometimes many of us, we just got so much. The reason why it's dangerous to know a lot and to not do anything with it is because you deceive yourself to think that you're okay because you know a lot. What's Paul talking about? He's like, don't just know. At some point, you got to do because the knowing can leak out. But when you do it, I, I think it just it adds to you and you're adding to the kingdom. And so we rejoice in the Lord lastly when we wash your thoughts, when you wash your thoughts with truth. Here's another verse. We're actually going to return to, to a couple of these verses next week. Next week, as we're celebrating our second week of Advent, we're going to be looking at the, the theme of peace. And we've covered, passed over it um, briskly here in our text today. But one of the things that comes out in these series of, of, of verses, verses 7 through 9, is uh, the peace of God that transcends all understanding. And here he talks about the God of peace. Who do we worship at Christmas? We worship, we want the peace of God to come in the form of a baby, but he also comes as the God of peace. And so we'll look at that next week, another public paid service announcement. But here's what he says in verse eight. Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, 
think about these things. Now, here's what I know about all of us in this room. Y'all got dirty minds. You do. I'm not just talking about sexual lust kinds of stuff, though. Um, We all have dirty minds. And here's what I mean by dirty mind. We have minds that drift from God into indulging our own desires. And sometimes they're sexual lustful desires. Our minds should drift from doing what God wants to um, only fixating on what we want. We get derailed from um, being interested in those things that God is interested in to actually forsaking people just to get what we want to happen. And sometimes we will purposefully do that to the detriment of other people. Try to get our desires, our needs, our wants fulfilled. All of our minds are trying to get approval from other people. The Bible tells us we must renew our minds. Why? Because your actions stem from your mind. As the mind thinks, the heart massages and your, your hands perform. I'm not saying that correct, exactly correct as I remembered it, but I mean, that, that really is how it happens. But it starts up here in your mind, and your mind will regulate the rest of what your body does. And so our minds drift. We drift to believe lies. We tend towards bondage. And here's what Paul says. The remedy is to soak our brains in the truth. And next week we'll look at these things. There's eight things that Paul is commending to us that we should do to reorient our minds off from my desires, my my needs, my wants, onto what God would have for me. And the way that Paul uh, expands this metaphor in other writings, in Ephesians 5 in particular, he says, we wash our minds with the water of the word. Now, uh, very quickly, why, why are these important? Why these four things in terms of rejoicing in the Lord, experiencing our joy in, in Jesus? I think Paul wants to, to get this, this idea into our brains. And going back to verse 4, he says this word, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. That's a challenging word if you really think about it. What does it mean? What does always mean? I mean, how, how long is always? When is always? Like right now is always. Actually, a couple minutes ago was always. Two seconds from now will be always. Five minutes from now will be later on this tonight. When you're doing whatever you do, when you do it, it's going to be always. And so always is we're always happening upon always. And here's the challenge of that. Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord always. And you all should be like saying, oh, my gosh, what is he telling me to do? Um. Here's a tool that I've used very recently. I didn't make this up. I got it from somebody else. But again, I was in a predicament a few weeks ago. It's like I realized, Jeff, you have no consistent, stable joy in your life, and so you need to do something. You know, sometimes we just can't lay in our bed and think, Lord, come on, zap me. Zap, do it. Do it now. I believe you, Lord. Sometimes we actually have to do some stuff. And there's enough stuff in Jeff's head to believe the Lord can do it, it's just, I, you know, I, he wanted me to do something. And so this has been a help to me. And, the, and it's an acronym, and it has to do with the Bible. So put your seatbelt on. Don't, don't turn me off. Uh, but I'm going to encourage you to actually open your Bible and read it. Here's the acronym. It's the acronym ROAD. ROAD stands for something. Here's what I've learned. I'm going to tell you what it stands for in a second. 
Um, here's what I've learned. There's only one thing that can truly give you joy. Y'all know what it is? Yeah. Somebody said it away over here and somebody whispered it. It's, it's Jesus. It's, it's not a secret. Jesus is, I should have said, there's only one person. Jesus is the only person that can give us joy. Everything else is a facade. It's faux. He, he really is. Here's where, here's where Jeff has a problem. Here's where you have a problem. We might have faith in Jesus. We might know some things about Jesus. Most of us, though, don't know how to get Jesus. We don't know how to get Jesus. I, I know experience, I know knowledge was how to get Jesus. I don't know right here how to get Jesus. Here's how you get Jesus. You need more word. To get more Jesus, you gotta have more word. You don't need more experience. You don't need more goosebumps. You don't need to be in a in a prayer meeting. You don't need to be in a room full of a thousand people lifting their hands and waving back and back and you got great music. You need more word. That's how you get more. Jesus. And this acronym helps you get Jesus. The, the R stands for read. And it means to read scripture, read a chunk of scripture in particular. Here's what's true about some of us. And it's not all y'all, but some of you, some of you are going to learn how to read your Bible for the first time, perhaps by what I'm telling you to do, because many of you get your first dibs of the Bible, not from reading it yourself, but you get it from hearing a guy like me or Nick or Saju come up and preach to you. You get it from a podcast. You get it from a devotional. You get it from a blog, and it's talking about spiritual things. And, and don't hear me right. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying God has like a first fruits, like goodness, like a meat, or if you're, if you're a vegetarian, he's got some nice veggies, all nice stat, stat, like sauce on it. Whatever yours, your perfect meal, God has that for you in the morning. But you actually you'll have to go do something to get it. And what do you do? You actually got to open your Bible and read. I think for me, learning, uh, just studying the Bible, reading the Bible, reading it, not just to read it, because I read the Bible all the time. I read through the Bible at least once, the whole thing, at least once every year. I use, a, I use a plan. I don't just make it up. I don't just open my Bible and do Russian roulette. I actually have an app on my phone. I don't read on my phone because I'll get distracted from text messages and like news and Facebook, right? I look at my phone for my for my my text, and then I open it up to the text and I read it from the Bible. And I I'm a I'm a disciplined person. I gotta admit. And so I actually do that. But then what this what this acronym has helped me to do is to focus myself on what I'm reading so that I would observe it. That's the next thing. Observe it. This means observe what you think is going on in the verse. The A means apply. Ask yourself, what does this mean for me? Determine how you're going to do what the actual verse says. The D is depend, um, and you're, you're offering a prayer of, of dependence. Here's the thing about our church that may not be um, common with other churches you've gone to. We have no pretense that we can actually do what God tells us to do in the Bible without his help. We are a gospel-centered, gospel-believing, Jesus-loving church, which means that our, our very faith is dependent on God helping us. And our growth in the Lord is depending upon him coming alongside us, Pericleo, Pericleo, from last week, 
coming alongside us to help us by giving his spirit to us to, to draw us to himself. That's what he's doing. And so uh, when we depend, we are praying a prayer of dependence, saying, Lord, I need your help even in putting this verse to action in my life. Um, I'm running out of time. Let me give you an example. I'm, I want to give you an example. All right? So an acronym isn't enough. Psalm 34, 37.4 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If I pray for you, I'm probably going to pray this verse for you. Um, I think about it a lot um, because I really want it to be true in my life. And it's kind of true, but it's not consistently true. And so this is the verse that I did this this week on this verse for these purposes. And so read. I actually wrote it down. That's what the read. You got to write. So not just a whole bunch of scripture, but take a chunk of scripture or a verse or two. Write it down. And then observe. This is what I observed. I actually wrote this down, too. I used to think this meant I do just what God. uh, If I do just what God wants, he'll give me what I want. If I follow Jesus, I'll get a new car because my car was a jalopy or better. But of course, this verse doesn't mean that. That's all I wrote for observe. And then in apply, I wrote this down. When I delight, parenthesis, rejoice in the Lord, I get my desires because God's desires become my desires. And God always gets what he wants. If I rejoice, parenthesis, delight myself in the Lord, my heart changes and my desires become God's desires. When my heart changes, what God loves, I love. What God hates, I hate. What God wants, I'm getting choked up. What God wants, I want. And then I wrote these words in all caps. This would be a good place to live. Mm. Knowing that my desires are God's holy desires is encouraging to me because it means they're going to happen. It's not just what I want. It's what God wants for me. Maybe not in the timing that I want it. But I can rest in him and have joy. So that's how I and then I prayed a prayer. I didn't write the prayer down. Sorry. But I prayed a prayer. Dependence. I said, Lord, you know what? These are good words to my heart. I said, but I can't even do this unless you come and help me. So. All right. So I've done a little bit of work. Can you come? Can you add to my work and help me? I think if you do this every morning or a couple mornings a week uh, on a few verses, here's what's going to happen you're going to, um, God is going to, unknowing to you, make the word more helpful to you. Um, the, the words aren't just going to be words, nice words that you may even memorize, but it's going to be things that you've thought about, not in the grand scheme, but contextually for you. And then you've been forced to write down and think about how can this work for me? And then you've done the faith thing. You've actually given it to God and says, Lord, all right, so I want to do this. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in, the, in my wanter to want you like I've just written. And I think that's just golden. So I commend that to you. Let me finish this text that, uh, that Tim Keller says, and I'll be done in a couple seconds. He, he finishes this quote that I began earlier. He says, rejoicing in the Lord is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. Um, so when you rejoice in the Lord, an internal thing happens, according to Tim Keller. He says, your heart is sweetened. I think what he means there is gladdened. It's like eating some 
Um, I mean, just like I, I was going to say dessert, but it's, you know, something healthy. I, don't, I can't think of anything healthy. <laughs> My wife's a personal trainer, and I'm in like this 28-day kind of like a holiday hustle. And I haven't even like had but like a couple cookies in two weeks. And that's just like crazy for Jeff. And so I have these visions of sugar plums dancing in my head. <laughs> He's saying your heart is sweetened, it's gladdened, it's lightened, and then it rests. You're no longer going, ah, oh, I need this. I just got to have it. All of a sudden, all the things that you think you need, you don't want them anymore. I'm praying for that to happen with sweets in my life. You just let go of it. And of course, this is the season that we really need that to happen for us. Because, you know, we're going out, we're holiday shopping, you're going to the mall, you're online shopping. And, and here's what happens. I don't shop a lot, but when I do shop, here's what happens. I see stuff. It's like, well, I want that. I want that too. And they're like, I, I want all this stuff. And my budget can't handle it. And to make it worse, the things that we want feeds our hopes, doesn't it? We say to ourselves, man, if I had that, that gadget, that spouse, that house, that job, that, that physique, that's what my wife was trying to <laughs> tone me up to do. If I could just look like Marcus. <laughs> Woo! I just look like that. But here's what Tim Keller's saying. This is the, I mean, doing that, that's the opposite of rejoicing. Dr. Keller is saying, your heart is sweetened, it's rested. And that's getting at what Paul says several times, and we'll get into this next week. God, he, God it, it becomes peaceful. The God of peace um, gives you his peace. And that's what we want. That's what God wants for us. So let me ask you as I close, what are you relying on? We rejoice in what we're relying on. Where's your hope? Where's your identity? What is your central sweetness to your life? That thing that makes you light and gladdened, makes you smile on the inside. What do you think about if you, if you had everything? If you could get anything that you wanted, what would that be? And would your life even be okay if you had it? Now, last, last thought on close. It would be wrong for us to, to leave this room. And Paul's exhorted us, challenged us to, to rejoice in the Lord so it would be wrong for us to leave this room and just like, it's like all right, I got to do it. I'm going to like do this thing. I'm going to like stress and strain and force myself to rejoice because that really is anti-gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is not calling us to that. I like this quote here. You'll rejoice in the Lord to the degree that you understand how much he rejoices over you. That's not my words. This is the Bible. Here it is. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. Jesus says himself in Luke 15, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he's encouraging us to rejoice, to, not because you're sweet and wonderful, but Jesus is. And he was. And so if you're a Christian, you're, you're in Jesus. And God rejoices over you because he rejoices over his son. That's good stuff. Jesus has performed all the work on your behalf. 
And when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it's finished. You're not finished. But everything Jesus needs to get you through this life, through death, to resurrection, where you're with Jesus forever, experiencing real joy, Jesus has already done. And though you're not finished yet, God rejoices over you anyway, which is the even better news. So I think when we get that, it's going to be a lot easier to rejoice. Let me pray. Father, this just joy stuff, we want to get it. Um, sometimes it just like seems so out of our grasp. We are desperate, desperately in need of joy. And I would add peace in that as well. And in this time of year, it's hard because sometimes we have life situations that don't lend to joy, but we got all this external stuff around us that, that's pressuring us to at least put on a fake, fake face that we are having joy. And so we pray in, in Tim Keller's words, that you would sweeten our heart, that there would be things surrounding us that would lighten us and make us glad. And I, I kind of pray that for all of us here, it would be Jesus kind of stuff. Lord, would you be our consolation that reminds us that we don't have to look to other things to find joy? Show us how to rejoice. Show us what that looks like. I pray a special prayer for those who might not know Jesus, who are struggling with the claims of who he is, and that you would um, surprise them with how gracious and joyous you are in salvation. Lastly, Lord, would you help us during Christmas, during this Advent season, expose all those ways that we lend to counterfeit joy. We commend ourselves to you. Lord, this, I mean, we're starting the season. There's all, all kind of stuff we got going on. Parties and um, shopping, just busyness. But what we really need is not just joy, but we need Jesus. So would you help us to find him? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.